Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Big Football Show. This is Scott Docterman. Uh, I cover Iowa football and the Big Ten for The Athletic. I'm joined by our esteemed Ari Wasserman, our five-star recruiting uh, reporter who covers recruiting nationally and also continues to dip his toes occasionally into the Ohio State beat. So how are you doing this morning, Ari? I'm doing well. I'm, I'm flattered to be in the presence of what I think is one of the best beat writers in any publication of any sport ever, Scott. So I appreciate you having me on. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, the flattery. And I guess uh, we'll both move off of our, uh, <laughs> you know, our craziness here and flattery for each other. But uh, let's uh, let's get into what's been going on this offseason here uh, with the Big Ten. And that is uh, we just got we just wrapped up the draft. And uh, Justin Fields was the number one guy. I think we all can agree that he was probably the biggest storyline, certainly in my part of the world. I'm not sure. Where are you, actually? Are you in Arizona or, or Ohio these days? Uh, I am in Dallas. You're in uh, Dallas. Which is, you know, kind of a weird place because I, uh, when I covered Ohio State, I lived in Columbus for 10 years. And then uh, I'm from Phoenix. And uh, the person I am engaged to lives in Dallas. So I moved here, which is a pretty good uh, central location for college football coverage from a recruiting standpoint and a lot of access to a lot of really good players. And it kind of worked out from that standpoint, but I still feel like a big 10 kid at heart. Well, you've been around for a million years in this part of the, in the world. So uh, Justin Fields, I mean, you covered him at Ohio state, you covered the recruitment and of course the transfer. Uh, what are the bears getting? And secondly, What's Ohio State going to do now that he's gone? Yeah, those are two very different uh, questions. So I'll try to tackle the first one. Um, and I don't know, Scott, and, and you can help me out with this, but you know what we do and, and how we do it is very different from being an NFL GM, right? Mm-hmm. So like if, the, if an NFL GM or NFL scout is looking at um, specific things on film, whether it be intricacies of footwork or throwing motion or, you know, picking up things on film by by seeing how quickly they can adjust to defenses and, and all the things that you need to succeed at the next level at the quarterback position, you know, it, it's a little bit different than just watching them play. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when, but, but what I will say is, is having watched all these guys play, I was pretty shocked throughout the entire draft process, uh, the way that Justin Fields was being graded mm-hmm. because, you know, ha- having covered Ohio state for more than a decade, and seeing all the talent that's come through there, he is the most physically gifted player ever to play at Ohio State, at least during my tenure, which was the Urban Meyer era and probably the most talented era of Ohio State football. And that includes players like the jo- Joey Bosa, Nick Bosa, the Bosa brothers, you know, Chase Youngs of the world, Ezekiel Elliott. I mean, there's a lot of really good players. And when it comes to pure physicality, and, and I don't know if the Bosa brothers is a great comparison because it's a very different position, but from what Fields was able to do from an athletic standpoint, the ability to throw the ball and how accurate he was, how strong his arm was, how well uh, he could run the ball in times of need, even though Ohio State didn't ask him to do it very much. Um, His durability, uh, toughness, leadership, the way he acted after the pandemic. It's just like, I don't know how many things that you need to see from a player in order to think that he is at least the second best draft prospect at that position in this class. Now, obviously, Trevor Lawrence is a, is a, a monster of his own, and, and nobody's going to argue that. But the way that he kind of fell, I was very surprised because just watching the games with my bare eyes, you know, the way that we all did, and, I, and maybe you agree with this, but it's just like 
wasn't he the clear second best quarterback in college football last year? No question in my mind. And, and uh, you know, I've covered Big Ten football since a little bit in the 90s, certainly since 2006 I, when I covered the Chiefs kind of in that middle, middle of a hiccup. And uh, going all the way back for 20 years, um, I can't think of a more gifted Big Ten quarterback really since Drew Brees, but I think Fields is a better prospect than Drew Brees was, certainly not a better overall quarterback you know at the nfl level but his athletic ability is off the charts i remember troy smith in his uh, 2006 season and how seemingly at the time unbeatable ohio state was he had nothing on uh, he was more jt barrett than he was justin fields justin fields combines like the terrell Pryor body and athletic ability with a passing game that Nobody else really has had. I mean, I, I going all the way back to even like Kerry Collins, nobody possesses what Justin Fields does, does. And I thought he was graded on a different scale. You know, Trey Lance, uh, North Dakota State quarterback, a freak athlete, Zach Wilson, uh, you know, incredible gunslinger. They were seemingly held up, up high for a smaller body of work than what uh, Justin Fields did. And then you look at the toughness component. Um, the hit he took against Clemson would have rocked any other quarterback and knocked him out of the game. And he comes back and throws, what, four more touchdowns after that? And then you look at, uh, you know, people have com- talked about his struggles. Well, there were two games where you could say, yeah, he struggled a little bit. One was Indiana in the second half, but they were up 35-7. to seven. The other one was Northwestern, and guess what? Northwestern had a really good defense. Greg Newsom uh, was a great sh- cover uh, shutdown corner. They had tremendous linebackers. They had really good pass rush. Plus, he was hurt. He had a hurt thumb. So I think he was unfairly downgraded. I, I detest at times the NFL draft echo chamber, although I subscribe to it and listen to it every single day practically. Uh, but I, I thought it was really unfair, And uh, but... For fans of the Chicago Bears, this was the most exciting draft day in a hundred years because they got the quarterback they wanted. Yeah, and you know, listen, quarterbacks are more advanced coming out of high school than they've ever been. Um, and I don't know who was the last major top ten bust like Jamarcus Russell. I mean, I, I think that it's happening far and far less because the quarterback prospects that are coming out are more and more refined. There's more science. There's more scouting. There's more everything when it comes to trying to find which which guy you want at that position at the uh, NFL level. So I don't doubt that all of them are going to be pretty good or very good in their own right. You know, when you draft a quarterback in the top five, you expect a 10 year starter and, you know, maybe Zach Wilson will be uh, an all pro. Uh, Maybe Trey Lance will develop into a Patrick Mahomes type player, uh, which I guess is something that you really shouldn't say, but I think that's the hope that the San Francisco Ford Niners have with just the raw ability that he has. Um, But a lot of times, too, like when you say about that echo chamber of the pre-NFL draft, it's like a lot of it, too, I always view as just kind of like bullcrap that people can consume for three months heading into the draft because it's exciting. There's no games. It's exciting to talk about. Um, But the fact is it came kind of true. Like, I mean, we we saw Justin Fields fall out of the top ten. And if I would have told you, Scott – you know, a year ago that Fields would be the fifth quarterback off the board, or what was he, the fourth quarterback off the board? I would have I would have told you, you would have laughed at me. You would have slapped me in the face. And 
it's just like it wasn't that long ago when Justin Fields looked better than Trevor Lawrence on the same field on the same day. I mean, he threw more touchdown passes against an elite level Clemson defense in a playoff game than incompletions. And it's just like if you want to pay more attention to the Northwestern and Indiana games, then that's your prerogative. But I think it's possible that Justin Fields could turn out to be a really, really good Pro Bowl long-term starter that saved Chicago's franchise and they never should have been able to get him where they got him. So, you know, that, that's a, that's a good plus. And, you know, for them anyway, but for Justin Fields, I, I just, I can't think of one player who throws it as well as he does and also runs it as well. Like, and I covered a lot of really good quarterbacks at Ohio state and Troy Smith was a little bit before my time, but I remember watching him very close closely and he was an excellent passer, but he also was an excellent runner. So you might say Troy Smith, but he also didn't have that that body, that size. I think he was three inches shorter. And we're talking about with Justin Fields, a draft prospect here that's you know about 6'3", 230 pounds. You can throw the ball 75 yards in the air and run a 4'4". You know? And it's just like that on top of what's the most important thing for an NFL quarterback, right? It's accuracy. And that guy hit, hit passes uh, that no other quarterback, maybe, I mean, Dwayne Haskins, maybe Troy Smith. I mean, they had some very gifted quarterbacks at Ohio state, Um, but he could make any throw that anybody who ever played that position at Ohio state could make. So, you know, and the other thing too, Scott, now I'm kind of curious to know what you think about this, but there seems to be this school of thought that for all the talented players that go through Ohio state, that quarterback really hasn't been one of them in terms of NFL, you know, success. And that's been true. But I think it's kind of a flawed line of thinking because, one, every quarterback is different, and most of them played in different systems at different times under different coaches. But two, being an NFL starter is one of the – you have to be one of the 32 best ones in the world. And when you think about where a lot of the best quarterbacks came from in the pros, it's not like all the other powerhouses are are quarterback producing powerhouses. Clemson has Deshaun Watson and now Trevor Lawrence, but before Watson, I don't know if you can name a few, uh, Alabama to this, you know, to this point has now Mac Jones and Tua tag of a tongue of Iloa, but like who is a long-term success at quarterback from Alabama? Like when you think about the best quarterbacks in the NFL right now, I mean, you think of Aaron Rodgers, he went to Cal and you think about Patrick Mahomes who went to Texas tech. It's completely random. So like, I'm just trying to think of like why this could happen and why it almost seemed like there was like this campaign to tank his stock during the process, you know, with the the leak thing about epilepsy and all the stuff that happened to him during it. And it's just like, when you sit back and just watch the games, like, isn't that, I feel like we're getting away from just watching the games and it's so much more about everything else and not enough about performance and draftability, if that makes sense. No question. And there's a, uh, you know, the, I, I kind of condemn the echo chamber. I think our colleagues, uh, Stuart Mandel, is, is called it like the industrial complex factor uh, with the NFL draft because we watch these players compete in live time. And then people take them slide by slide by slide. And sometimes it's different. When it's third and four and they throw a slant for a seven-yard gain for a first down, that's a big deal in the game action. Uh, whereas when you're breaking it down, there people are looking at their fundamentals and all these other you know aspects. And and I, I went through um, the quarterbacks who are in the first round really since uh, you know really 07. So almost a, a 15 year period here, and kind of graded them out by A, B, C, D that sort of level. And you know you have Patrick Mahomes. 
okay, his resume is a lot like what we see with Trey Lance. And Trey Lance is, um, you know, it, it's it's marginal. Uh, is he going to be able to do it at a pro level? Uh, we don't know that yet. Uh, really, the only comparison I found to, to Justin Fields is probably Cam Newton coming out. Uh, just a physically dominant athlete capable of throwing and, and but I think he's his touch on his passes might be better than what Cam showed at times uh, you know you look at all the others have slight flaws too uh, you know Josh Allen completion percentage he was at Wyoming it took him a time to do it Andrew Luck looked like the great prospect he's not gonna be a Hall of Famer uh, Matt Ryan very good but doesn't have the movement that uh, that Fields has shown. And then you kind of go on and on. Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray. There was this uh, impression that spread quarterbacks five years ago couldn't make it in the NFL. And then we've seen you know what Baker Mayfield, Kyler Murray, Patrick Mahomes has been able to do. So I think all of those cliches and stereotypes, you throw them out the window and you've got to look at them individually uh, for what they are. And I think in, in at as, as that big collective of Ohio State quarterbacks – Take them individually. JT Barrett was a tremendous leader on the field. NFL caliber quarterback didn't really have the arm for that. I look at Troy Smith was like him, but had a better arm. Uh, Dwayne Haskins, we did. We saw only what we saw for one year on the field. We didn't know what was really going to happen at the next level and why it, it didn't work out for him there. Joe Burrow, Lord knows if he would have stayed, that would have changed the narrative. Uh, Terrell Pryor, great athlete, but everybody was talking about him being, what, a tight end or a wide receiver coming out. So there was so much of this. So I think this teardown process of prospects, it just gets old. And I saw it with my own two eyes. You saw it all the time. This guy can play, and he can play at an elite level. He wins big games. That Northwestern game was there to lose. I mean, frankly, I mean, what, they were down at halftime or close to it. Uh, Northwestern had a great defense. He was injured, yet he comes back and wins. He takes that shot against Clemson. He throws six touchdown passes. His first, the, the completion percentage is bullshit, frankly, because look at his first three games last year. 20 of 21, 28 of 34, 24 of 28, you know, for what, 11 touchdowns, no interceptions? He's balling, man. I mean, the Bears are, are beyond the moon on this one, and uh, they might have the steal of the draft. In fact, I hope they do. You know, I, I don't want to hijack the podcast from you, but I wanted to bring something up, and, and maybe just like even an Iowa thing and a Minnesota thing uh, before I answer how Ohio State's going to gonna move on from this. Uh, but, you know, when we're talking about these elite-level quarterbacks, Scott, I want to get your perspective on this because I've been thinking a lot about it since the draft. But if you go back and you look at Trey Lance's uh, recruiting profile, we've got a six foot four, 195 pound athlete who is raw as hell, uh, but wants to play quarterback at the next level. We're not sure at the time when he's in the 2018 class whether or not he can do that. But he's rated in the 2000s somewhere, and he is in a Big Ten state. And he has interest from Minnesota, but no power five offers or at least to play quarterback. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, in the same discussion as we're having um, about, you know, the athleticism that Justin Fields possesses, how um, a quarterback like this um, can get out of the big 10. And look, I know it's easy to look back and say, Hey, would have, should have, could have, but with the way that these scholarship uh, numbers are set up right now. 85 is a lot. And I'm just thinking like, shouldn't Minnesota just offer a quarterback like that just to see what happens. And if you hit, then you hit. And if you miss, there's, there's 
way bigger wastes of scholarships than trying to hit the lottery on a quarterback like that. And maybe he turns into a tight end if it doesn't work out or whatever, you know, position he, but a six foot four, 200 pound guy with a body like that, that he hasn't grown into yet. And it's just like, he goes to North Dakota state and turns into the top five draft pick that he became. And it's just like, isn't there a spot for a, <coughs> excuse me, a prospect like this on a big 10 roster somewhere? No question. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to make any excuses, but I will uh, kind of, when it comes to Iowa, give a give a little bit of background because it became a big issue last week. Um, in the 2017 class, which is you know the signing pet class that all three of those were in at the end of December, um, Iowa was really dragging ass at quarterback. Uh, they offered, they really liked Will Levis. That's who they wanted. They felt like they had him. Then Penn State was his dream offer. He goes to Penn State. So towards the end of the cycle, they were, they were really speed dating. They had three guys in mind. Well, I'll say this, starting with Trey Lance. Marshall, Minnesota is at the edge of the earth. It's closer to North Dakota, really, than it is even Minneapolis, let alone Iowa City. So it's about, it's almost as far as Columbus from Iowa as uh, as um, it is from Iowa City. That said, um, they looked at him as a linebacker or a safety and didn't quite see the quarterback talent there. Minnesota did offer him and didn't pull the trigger on the quarterback part of it, but I agree with you on that one. Now, what angers more Iowa fans is that their their final two choices were Spencer Petras uh, from you know San Rafael, California, broke all of Jared Goff's records, six five gun, really liked him, and Zach Wilson. So they those were their final two. They offered Petras first. They liked him a little bit more. Then they had a, a trip lined up for Zach Wilson. Zach writes a story or gets a story written about him by one of the local reporters. And then Petrus gets spooked and commits. They pull the trip for Zach Wilson. Now I look at this and think, wow, what Iowa could have looked like last year uh, with Zach Wilson at quarterback because they were the best team in the West by the end of the year and, you know, throw one less interception against Northwestern and they're playing Ohio State in Indianapolis. Uh, but, you know, the, the Trey Lance one, it kind of hit the donut. That was Minnesota's fault more than Iowa's. But still, I think, you know, that's a gr- good point. When you have somebody that far away, I mean, that's like the tip of the – it, it is it, – it's really far from any Big Ten school. I would say Nebraska should be in that same boat too. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. Yeah, and and this isn't a discussion saying, hey, look how dumb Iowa and Minnesota are. It's not, you can't go back in time and and rewrite history based on the way things turned out. You can't be results-oriented all the time. You make the best decisions that you can make in the moment, and, and you go from there. But it's not even, you know, 
about Trey Lance specifically. It's about altering the way we view the recruitment of the quarterback position moving forward as a result of what Patrick Mahomes has done and as a result of what Trey Lance has done. And it's just like if there is a quarterback who possesses these raw physical ability, you just take him moving forward and hope it works out. And if he's in your program and you know, you see something you like at quarterback, you let him work on it for a year or two. And then if not, then, you know, these big 10 teams have a six foot four cornerback who can, or safety or linebacker or wherever you want to put him, or he transfers out either way. I think it's a good use of a scholarship to, for, for lack of better words, you know, use a lottery scholarship every year, you know, or, or try if there's somebody who's interested in not getting the offers that he should be getting just based on pure athleticism, you know, how many scholarships come and go that that never do anything? I think you can afford yourself at least one or two spots per year, um, which would be almost 10 percent of your roster. And, and I understand that's a lot um, on these types of players. And if you hit on one or even two out of those 10, your program is different. Mm-hmm. And let's be honest, too, even if you do this twice a year, most of the time, the, the attrition happening throughout the offseason and transfers and wanting to do other things you wouldn't have 10 of them on your roster at any one given point anyway. Mm -hmm. So like to me, I just think it's a lesson of how, you know, middle tier programs or or programs who are on the cusp of playing in Indianapolis, the way that Iowa was or or Minnesota has been to say, Hey, we might be one dynamic talent away at quarterback from being a completely different team or a team that could actually potentially win the conference, you know, and I, in having covered Ohio state, I understand that the talent gap between them and most of the other programs in the country is obscene. You know, they, they're signing 10 to 12 top 100 players in, in the country every year, while the rest of the conference is maybe signing five total. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not something that you're just going to overcome by, by hitting on one Trey Lance. But you know what? Northwestern, the, the talent gap between Northwestern and Ohio State couldn't be wider if you tried to make it a wider gap. And if, if Northwestern has one player like that at quarterback that they hit on as a result of that, then maybe that game that was out there to lose actually turns into a loss for Ohio state. Mm-hmm. Ohio state is the big bad wolf of the big 10, but they're not a, they're not immortal. you know, like you, you can get them. So like, to me, it's just like, if I were a coach, I would use the Trey Lance model and say, Hey, you know what? If there's a six foot four, six foot five, 200 pound athlete that oozes, with ability the way that he did and he wants to play quarterback and we don't think he can do it, but there's like a 10% chance he might turn out to be a top five pick. Take him. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. I think that I, how many times do you take other prospects that never sniff the field at the position that they were supposed to, to play to begin with? I think it's certainly worth the risk. No question. And I think that's a lesson that some of these uh, teams are, are facing. I think Minnesota has had a more so than, you know, Iowa, there's not many prospects in Iowa as compared to even Minnesota. Uh, they've lost a lot to Iowa and Wisconsin, specifically in the Twin Cities area. Sometimes they don't offer, and they're maybe a low three-star guy that goes and thrives at those two other two schools, ends up in the league, and you're thinking, man, you know, they really could have used the defensive back of the year in Amani Hooker, who is a borderline three-star from North Minneapolis, or, uh, you know, one of the, the linebackers, Ryan Connolly. Uh, that goes to, to Wisconsin and starts for two years at inside backer and makes big play after big play. So Minnesota's probably, I think P.J. Flex done a really good job of turning it into a probably a better program than it was when he inherited it. But, you know, there's still those players that he needs to kind of grab from those spots. But, you know, kind of looking ahead now with Justin Fields now in the NFL, 
Um, Ohio State, every year you kind of look at them and go, okay, they lose a, an all-timer at quarterback. What's next? <clears throat> well, <laughs> what's next and how good is what's next? Well, if you look at what Alabama did uh, in the first round of the NFL draft this year, mm-hmm. having f- six first-round picks, I don't think it's out of the question that Ohio State will have five next year. Okay. And part of the reason why is because some players who probably should have been first-round picks returned to Ohio State inexplicably like Chris Olave should not be on Ohio state's roster right now. He should be a first round pick on an NFL team. You know, Thayer Munford would have been a top 100 pick had he left. And now they have a left tackle. Uh, They are just oozing. And I use that word a lot oozing Mm -hmm. with athleticism um, across the board. And, you know, their defensive backfield has some places where they need to, you know, iron some things out. But when you look at like Haskell Garrett and Tyreek Smith and um, their entire offensive line could be, draft picks this year, high-end draft picks, which is something that Ohio State has somehow lacked in the last five years. Um, you know, the major question mark, too, is is running back. And, you know, they have a five-star running back who came in who's probably going to start from day one, and he already looks like a star. Their wide receiver room has, you know, Jamison Williams just transferred to Alabama, but it has potentially five players who have first-round ability in that one room. Um, so, you know, the main question, I guess, here is, A, uh, who is the quarterback going to be and uh, B how can Ohio state fix their defense? So the first thing is I think Ohio state's defense will be fine. The thing with, with this, this program is, is that they are never at a loss for talent. And when you have too much talent or as much talent as they do, then, you know, any competent coach should be able to, you know, figure something out. Um, And then of course the bigger question and the biggest question is who's going to be the quarterback. Now, you know, losing Justin Fields, you don't just replace him. And I don't think that anybody on this roster is going to be as good as him. And that's, you know, a reality that people just have to understand, you know, having covered Ohio State for as long as I did, I think the fan temperament is always, well, is this going to be better than last year when they lose really good players? And it's just like sometimes that happens, but it's just not a rational way of thinking. So the the question really should be, are they going to have a quarterback that's good enough to get them to the playoff? And I think the answer is probably yes to that question. Um, you know, right now, C.J. Stroud seems to be the leader. He looked the best in the spring game, and he was a top 50 player uh, coming out of high school. Um, they also have a five-star quarterback in, in Kyle McCord, who came in in this year's class, who, you know, looks like a world beater. And then, of course, Jack Miller, who was in the top 300, but partially because he spent a large portion of his career in high school on the injured list. So, you know, the, here's what I'll say. We don't know for sure who Ohio State's quarterback is going to be next year, but the fact is, is they've got three all-world talents to pick from. And when you have Ryan Day as your as your coach, um, you know, the odds that Ohio State's going to find somebody who's good enough to win the conference is probably pretty high because you've got three different options. So, you know, I, I don't know exactly how good Ohio State's going to be. In fact, I think last year's Ohio State team was probably even worse than the year before when they were in 2019 when they lost yeah. to Clemson in that odd uh, Fiesta Bowl. Um, but I do think that the expectation and the talent on the roster lends itself to the chance or, or probably the expectation that it'll at least make the playoff again. Um, how that's going to look, uh, it, it'll definitely look different. You know, you're not going to replace Justin Fields, maybe not for another 20 years, even with how well Ohio State's recruiting. They've got the number one player in the country committed in the 2022 class in Quinn Ewers out of Texas. Um, but still, it's just hard to fathom anybody being better at, at quarterback than Justin Fields. So, you know, options are always a plenty uh, in that program. And, you know, they they might actually legitimately, and I know this sounds crazy, have five or six first-round draft picks next year if things break in their direction. And if they do, I think Ohio State's going to have a really good football team again. And 
here's the last thing. I think that the old school way of looking at college programs is, is to open up your Athlon magazine or your Lindy's magazine and, you know, check the returning starters and the, mm-hmm. you know, the things on in those boxes that tell you how many people left and departures and, and returnees. And, you know, those days are over for Ohio State. You know, if there if there are are signing recruiting classes that have legitimately 10% of the top 100 players in the country coming in every year, that means that their roster is, is I don't know, is littered the right word. 50% of their roster is made up of top 100 players. That is insane. So, you know, in terms of how good they can be every year, they should be a national championship contender every single year with the way that the roster is built up. How can the Big Ten catch up to that is a, is a different podcast and a different discussion and maybe a question that can't even be answered. But while the recruiting rankings are, are seeing these teams, um, you know, 66% of the top 100 players in the country last year went to five programs. So as long as it's it's as lopsided as it is, it's kind of hard to imagine a, a world where parity is really all that, you know, available. And you would think, well, they just lost Justin Fields and, you know, they had 10 draft picks. This is the year to get them. And it's just like, I hate to tell people, but it's, it's really not. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. And, uh, you know, when you do have that kind of elite talent, it's hard to, it's hard to compete with that. You have to bring something different and special. Which is why, yes, they're prone to, to getting beat. Um, we saw it when they went to Iowa City in 2017, when they went to Purdue in 2018. Elite talent, uh, road venues, sometimes that just does change things. Or, you know, in, in Purdue's case, they had great wide receivers. Uh, in Iowa's case, they, they played a physical style of football that was a little bit difficult for, I thought, Ohio State to replicate at that point. However, when you look at they had 10, Ohio State had 10 draft picks, four of which were five stars. The other six were four stars. Four out of the five Big Ten five-star draft picks were from Ohio State. The other one was Parsons, at least according to rivals. Uh, I think this is uh, when you can continue to replenish that. The one thing that it does for an Ohio State versus any other team in the league is that if a, if a five-star busts or a high four-star bust, you've got somebody in there who can replace them. Or if somebody gets hurt, you can replace them at that level at, at a Wisconsin or an Iowa. Uh, they may have really good teams, great units, but when somebody gets hurt, when somebody's out, and maybe that three-star plays like a five-star, the, the, the guy coming in is a, still a three-star developing. And that's where the, the, the gap lies with developmental programs versus ones that can just replenish elite talent. At and a, you just at hit level. it all on the head there, Scott, because people think, well, five-star prospects uh, aren't always great. And that's true. But when you sign seven of them, and four pan out, mm-hmm. that's still like that. That's how it works. It's not necessarily the individual recruitments of individual prospects. It's the cumulative effect that your roster has when you have all of them. And, and the one thing I'll, I'll make a point to too, is that even though you, you, you did mention that the, the, the 17 Purdue or 18 Purdue and 17 Iowa games, both of which I was at were, we're real. And Ohio state is always going to be susceptible to being upset. It's college football. That's never going to change. But the one thing I'll, I'll urge people to go look at is Ohio state's recruiting hasn't really gotten to the level that it's at right now until the 2017 class. So when those losses were happening, 
they were still early in the progression. And if you go back and you look at Ohio State's recruiting classes, they've always been very, very good under Urban Meyer. But there were a few blips in a few years where they weren't quite as dominant. And those were in the the, the 16, uh, 15 range, uh, most, so, most so 16. And it's just like that's kind of when those showed up. And like now Ohio State is recruiting at a level that even Urban didn't recruit. And I'm very curious to see how that's going to look because, you know, last year they finished number two to Alabama in the recruiting rankings, but both teams signed uh, record-breaking classes to be the best class of all time, you know, to the previous 20 years. And now they're off to the same types of starts again in the 2022 class. So now that Ohio State's recruiting it, I mean, think about it. They're, they're, they're signing five or six more top 100 players on average a year than they were back in 2015 and 16 when they won a national championship. So during the times where they had those major upset losses during the regular season, their team wasn't as deep, nearly as deep as it is now. Yeah. And, and frankly, you know, when you look at, you know, in particular, the, the 17 upset, which I think was probably more shocking simply by the method of what, how Iowa beat Ohio state and, and also the score. Uh, But there were 15 first round draft picks that that played in that game, six of which were Iowa's or uh, uh, near upset. And the championship game is you have you can develop your way into a championship caliber program. You have to have difference makers. This kind of goes all the way back to circle to our Justin Fields discussion is if uh, Northwestern had a Trey Lance type at quarterback, if Iowa would have had a Trey Lance type at quarterback, maybe even a Michael Penix type quarterback for either one of those teams last year, maybe that's when Ohio State was gettable. Now, this year, uh, the top two teams in the West, in in my eyes right now, are Iowa and Wisconsin. And they've got teams and styles that could be difficult matchups for Ohio State. But they have to have difference makers on offense because, Lord knows, Chris Olave and and Garrett uh, Wilson and Master Teague, they're matchups that either team, they could slow down, but they can't completely stop. Yeah, you know, I... Let me say, too, the uh, 17 Iowa-Ohio State game was one of the most thorough ass-kickings I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, to this day, like, that is a game that I will remember for the rest of my life. (laughs) And, like, that, to me, was great coaching, great game plan, great development of talent. Well, they had two first-round tight ends on that team, too, right? And Ohio State had a hard time covering tight ends that year, and they, they, they schemed up. Uh, Ohio State's weakness exploited it and then just beat the crap out of them. And I thought that was like a beautiful display of great football. And, you know, that is just a reminder that we can sit here and talk about talent and stars all day. I would love to. That's what I do all day. I scream into the abyss. No one's listening about how important signing these types of classes are. But the Big Ten West, when those, I mean, Iowa's had very good teams. Wisconsin's had very tough teams. And both teams have had Ohio State on the ropes or beaten them in the recent past. It's certainly possible. Um, but I do think that sometimes, and most of the time, I'd probably say nine out of ten times, Ohio State's facing those really, really good programs, those very solid teams. It comes down to playmakers and people who are going to change the game. And it's just like oh, Wisconsin had the ropes, had Ohio State on the ropes in the Big Ten championship game in 19. And that was one of the best Ohio State teams they've ever had. And what happened as the game went on, Ohio State's playmakers took over and Wisconsin, who was winning at halftime, didn't even cover the spread. So, like, it's just one of those things where, you know, I do think that 
you know, Iowa, Wisconsin, these types of programs have the ability to win the Big Ten. And, and to the same extent, Michigan and, and, and Penn State on the other side do. But I do think that they are at least two or three players, which over the course of four year period in, in recruiting, isn't that unreasonable to ask for like dynamic, legitimate game changing athletes from actually closing out these games when they have a chance to do it on a consistent level. Yeah. And I think, you know, what we've highlighted here and then we'll kind of move to a little bit different subject is that in the big 10, based on wins over the last five to six years, Ohio State is double digits, has double digit more Big Ten victories than number two, which is Wisconsin, which I think has 59 over the last six years. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Um, 49, 59, something like that. Penn State and Iowa are tied for third. And those, you know, those four pro. Now, Northwestern's won two Big Ten West titles, but had an incredible drop in the middle. Uh, went three and nine and, and 19 before gathering it up. So, there is such a gap between Ohio State, the players that they're able to get, and everybody else. And so I, I think that's kind of the crux is, can anybody catch Ohio State? No, I'm taking Ohio State against the field every year. And even when they do get beat, it's a one-time thing. It's a, a one-year thing. They're still going to, I mean, what, they've won four straight titles. Are they going to win five? The, the answer is probably, you know. So, uh, but... You know, around the Big Ten, there there was a lot of talent lost, and if we, you know, what you know, Penn State to me is, I mean, they had six draft picks. You know, Micah Parsons opted out last year. Oway and, and Tony were really quality defensive ends, even though maybe statistically didn't show last year. Uh, Fryermuth was was a tremendous tight end, especially two years ago. I mean, Penn State probably recruits at the second best level in the Big Ten. Uh, what? How do they replace them? Are they capable of, uh, you know, becoming a competitive team and a worthy challenger to Ohio State? Yeah, I uh, I don't know the answer to that. I think it's possible that Penn State might be a little down this year, and they they had a really really tough go of it in their twenty twenty one class. So, you know, the idea of it is too is that like, I think over overall the overarching thing that I think about in the Big Ten in general is like elite level quarterback play, right? And it's just like, it's not very prevalent. And I don't know what the reason for that is. And we've had some really good quarterbacks in this conference in in the recent past, but it's just like, it's just not existent right now at at Michigan and it's not existent at Penn State. And in order for them to go in and, and have a talent deficit, a major talent deficit when they're facing Ohio State, you need to even the, the score a little bit. And that's usually done by having a really dangerous quarterback and you know, it's happened in the past, but like which quarterback in the big 10 right now has what you think it takes on either side of the conference to go in and win that football game. If there's one that I pick out, it's, it's probably Graham Mertz. Now I saw him at his worst and they looked terrible against Iowa, but that said, I think I, I saw him also at his best and uh, I think he's capable of being really good. He was without some some players. They had some major COVID issues. So I think he's a high-level, talented player. Uh, a wild card to me is uh, Spencer Petras at Iowa. Flashed sometimes. I mean, his last two games, he threw five touchdowns, no interceptions, uh, but is also pretty inconsistent at other times. I look at uh, at Sean Clifford, and for whatever reason, I just see the Andy Dalton of the Big Ten. 
you know, good quarterback, can do good things. But last year, you know, they started 0-5, and then they were messing around with quarterback. I When they had Trace McSorley, they had an offense that was built to do some incredible things. And I think that's what made them such a, a special program, able to win a, a Big Ten title, uh, play in major bowl games. Beat Ohio State or come yeah. close to it. Right, yeah, did, did that 16 game and then, you know, should have really in 17 um, for that great comeback. They also had Saquon Barkley who – you know, was probably, I mean, it was, last decade was the decade of the running back in the Big Ten, but he was probably at the top of the list. Uh, they had some great players on both sides of the ball. They still do. I mean, they still have a lot of starters, but they didn't play like it until late in the year last year. I don't see anything that makes me go, yes, this team could go four quarters against Ohio State and, and can compete unless they play their absolute best game and Ohio State plays poorly. So, and then to flip it, Indiana – uh, Michael Penix, his health is going to be really instrumental. Um, and last year, you know, they – I'm not going to dismiss what they did because I think they had play, played really well through most of the year. They did benefit from historically bad Michigan, Michigan State, and Penn State teams. And him getting hurt, I wonder how healthy he'll be because in week one he's got to come to Kinnick Stadium. And uh, that was a team that, was, that won five out of its last six games by 14 points or more. Uh, was playing as well as anybody in, in, you know, maybe from teams four through 15 as there was in the country last year. Uh, so that's going to be a tough environment. And if he's not healthy, he could get, you know, they could get run out. So I, I'm really fascinated by the East. Can Michigan bounce back? Because I don't know what you think. You saw him closer than I did. I saw a team that absolutely quit, you know, against Wisconsin. That was, a, that was like the scout team not wearing shoulder pads. It was gross, and I don't know if they can bounce back because if they and they had eight draft picks, so it's inexcusable the way they played. Yeah, no, I know it's uh, the Michigan discussion is such a an interesting one because a um, they had so much talent on their roster, and people like to use them as a uh, I don't know, like the exception to the star rule, and it's just like here's what I'll always say. Stars are imperative. You need to have them in order to win a national championship, but that's not the only thing that needs to happen. It's like making, and I, I made this, this uh, analogy on uh, Andy Staples show, but it's like, if you're making a chicken noodle soup, the five-star players are the broth. Now that doesn't mean that you uh, are done with the soup at the broth. You have to still do everything else, right? Like you have to, to develop, you have to scheme up, you have to create a culture. You, you needed to, to, to put these, these players in a position where they want to play hard for you and all the things that make a great soup. But if you don't have the broth, you don't have a soup at all. Mm-hmm. So like Michigan from a certain aspect of it, isn't putting together the same types of classes that Ohio state is who they're always directly compared to, but they have the broth of it. It just seems like the cook in the kitchen has things wrong. So like, I'm trying to figure out exactly um, how to view Michigan in terms of, of whether a coaching staff is right now and what to make of the Jim Harbaugh situation, because I will say one thing, I respect the hell out of the idea that a guy knows that he's not getting it done. He takes a huge pay cut sticks around and wants to see it through, redoes his entire staff with a, a more youthful Midwestern feel to it with Michigan, former Michigan high school coaches on there, you know, maybe some new, you know, ideas that they can mix in there. And, you know, they do have a, a five-star quarterback coming in and a really, really good running back and Donovan Edwards, like they have pieces in place. And it's like, how do we view Michigan's 
current reality right now. Is Michigan building back up with a new staff and a new recruiting class um, to try to like change the score or is it having to win and win now? And it's like, those are two very different things because personally, you know, believe it or not, I, I, I have faith that Michigan can turn it around. The problem with me is that I don't think that Michigan can do it now. So like, if you have uh, a situation where Jim Harbaugh is either win 10 games or you're out, then I think that they're in trouble. But I do think that with this new staff and this new ability to, you know, kind of recruit their area, formulate a plan. They just recently recruited, uh, replaced a recruiting coordinator who their previous one I didn't think was very good. And now they, they have one in place that I think can identify and, and create a, a plan that works. And then, you know, I think in three or four years, they could be really good. I don't know if I'm alone in this, Scott, but I think that Michigan could be a playoff team with the right pieces in place when it comes to the coach, the recruiting coordinator, and the assistants. They have uh, all the money in the world. They play in a unique, cool stadium. Their uniforms are iconic. They have a history in place. Uh, Ann Arbor, I think, is one of the coolest towns in the Big Ten. Um, The education is top-notch. I mean, what do you need at a program from a resources standpoint to win a national championship that Michigan doesn't have? You know, and it's just, it's insane to me what's going on there. Insane. Yeah, it is. And I... I dare say it's more coaching related than it is player related. I think you look at 2016 and you see that uh, that team that came within an inch of winning the Big Ten title, just uh, it was right there. It, it lacked a quarterback, but that defense, I would put it, put that one and the 2013 Michigan State defenses as the best I've seen in the Big Ten over the last 10 years. I thought they were tremendous on that side of the ball. They had opportunities at other things. I thought on defense, they coached a little bit with arrogance. I thought there was too much A-gap blitzing, too much man coverage, especially against Ohio State, and they crossed them to death across the field. And when you're in man coverage in those situations, it's a death match. And why you continuously do that over and over and over again is is arrogant. I thought uh, last year I saw a team quit, and, and Michigan cannot do that. That's I would say nobody can do that. No, but yeah, when you when you see a team with that kind of tradition. Um, and history and those that talent too, for that matter, give up the way they did. And at the end of the year, yeah, I didn't uh, field a team when maybe it could have. I think that's, uh, to me, I, I look at that and I go, that can never happen again. Now you can go out and get your ass kicked. And you, but if you, if you're playing hard, you can, you don't have to accept it, but you can so, you know, exhale. But when you give up the way they did against Wisconsin, um, that was unacceptable. And if they do that again, they have to have a new staff. There's just not, in my eyes, you just cannot field a team at you know the big house that's not going to at least fight you for four quarters. I think that was the game where the, the entire paradigm of the way we viewed Michigan's coaching staff changed. Now, the question is, is the million-dollar question is, is Harbaugh the guy? You know, And it's a hard question to ask because when he was hired uh, – he was viewed as the savior of the program. He was Michigan's urban Meyer. I mean, and everybody, I mean, it was a slam dunk hire and nobody in the world would say that's not the right move. Everybody was excited. They were supposed to start another 10 year war. They were supposed to compete for national championships and none of that happened. And, and part of the reason is Michigan just has a shitty hand. I mean, there's no other way to put it. No matter how hard, uh, they fight and how good of a season they're having. They always have to face the Alabama of the Big Ten at the end of the year. 
and other schools that are trying to do that don't have to to face that obstacle. And Michigan is always, always directly compared to Ohio State, who's playing at a level right now and built a program at a level right now that even Ohio State's never had. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a tough situation. But when you start losing and losing like that to other teams in the Big Ten on top of it, you know, it just kind of makes you think like, hey, is Harbaugh the guy to do it? And, and the problem, too, is that Harbaugh is just an odd individual. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong or good or bad, but it's kind of hard to relate to him because he doesn't answer questions in press conferences. He's not charismatic when it comes to like explaining or discussing issues with the team. So it kind of has this like closed off feel. Like I remember once he didn't even talk to the media after the spring game. And it's just kind of like all you're left with when it comes to Michigan is filling the gaps in on your own by talking to people around Harbaugh and seeing the final product. And the final product right now leaves a lot to be desired. So, you know, the idea of you need to get a new staff, uh, happened i mean he basically revamped the entire infrastructure of his program this offseason and you know as incentivized incentivized contractually excuse me um to win at a high level and has taken less money to prove that he can do it so like those types of things are encouraging to me but if they come out and look like they did a year ago in that wisconsin game again then you have to just say hey you know what guys this isn't the staff this is the man in charge and when the man in charge is is somebody who's high profile and is loved by the community as, as Jim Harbaugh is. That's just a tough pill to swallow. So, you know, I'm very interested to see what Michigan has this year. I think they lost a lot of talent, and I don't know if they have the talent really to replace it. And, like, the expectations around this team and this new staff are probably going to outweigh what they actually have on their roster, which means I think people have to either accept Harbaugh as a, a three- or four-year solution again at this point or, or move on, because I don't know that you're going to get the answers that you're looking for in this one year. I think what you need to see, I, 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 I put Michigan and Nebraska in a similar category. Yes, they recruited a different level and they're in different geog geographically, but they have incredible histories. Uh, they have not reached the expectation, their expectations for a long, long time. And they also have kind of prodigal sons returning, leading the programs. Everybody expected to kind of guide them out of the wilderness and neither one has done it. Uh, Michigan at a higher level, because uh, I would say, you know, I did this, the, the top 40 coaches uh, since Kirk Ferentz was hired in the big 10 and, and Jim Harbaugh record wise is, you know, really close to the, he's top five, but, uh, but your expectations at, at Michigan are always twofold. Win the big 10 title and beat Ohio state. And if you don't do either one, it's a it's a lost season, and and that's tough. Um, Nebraska is kind of the same way, although I think that has fallen off, especially when they when they switch leagues. So, you know, I I look at this team and this roster, and I think, what if Matt Campbell was the head coach there? They would play hard, and I I think when he, if he ever makes that change that, you know, to me, I think, you know, Notre Dame is, is probably in play and maybe Michigan or somebody, but I think that could be a real uh, tough spot, but uh, let's take a quick look around the league and then we'll, we'll shut this one down. Um, Northwestern two first round draft picks, uh, Rashawn Slater and Greg Newsome. Uh Slater sat out last year, so he didn't really affect the program that much. Uh, plus, I think they have the best left tackle in the league in Peter Skronsky. He was absolutely phenomenal last year as a true freshman. I think people are going to be wishing that he was a you know, redshirt sophomore this year. Greg Newsom was 
you know, the shutdown corner. Statistically, you won't know that, but if you watch the film, you saw that. I don't know how they replaced them. I don't know how they replaced. They had a lot of transfers out of the program. I, I, I've learned over the years, beware of <laughs> downgrading Northwestern, but I don't know that I see championship caliber this year for, for them. Uh, Ryan Holinsky is a, is a transfer uh, from South Carolina. Can he be what Peyton Ramsey was? It remains to be seen. They had a five-star transfer in Hunter Johnson, and uh, he, he was not a five-star player, that's for sure. Yeah, the one thing I'll say about Northwestern is, you know, I think that for uh, a large portion of the past decade, they've been one of the best scouting departments in the Big Ten, and they get players who play a, a, above their ratings very often, and that's like going back to Matt Campbell. I think you could say that, Iowa state probably gets more out of their talent than any other program in the country. And, you know, when you put that in with the ability to coach at a program, that's already a brand and that can attract high level talent. And then you combine that with the skill of doing that. That's what I think makes Matt Campbell such a uh, unique candidate, because I think that he would still be able to get those, uh, those gems that are, are kind of below the radar, but also combine them with elite level talent that you inherently get just by coaching at a big time program. Um, and the reason why I kind of went off on that talent tangent is, is that I think Pat Fitzgerald has been able to do kind of the same thing. And when you look at the recruiting results that Northwestern's had and the results that they've had on the field, you know, playing in two big 10 championships recently, I think it's been kind of remarkable. So, you know, in terms of how hard that team plays and what they're, they're usually built to do, I don't know, you know, I may, I don't, it'd be a good debate which which program or which coach in college football has gotten the most out of their roster in the last five years. And I think Northwestern is firmly in that discussion with Iowa State. Without a doubt. Um, you know, they and one thing that they do so well is they adjust from hiccups. They went to the big they won the Big Ten West in 18. Then they went three and nine and had it. A stunningly pathetic offense. Frankly, it was as bad as I've seen in this league. 20. They go get a, a new quarterback. Boom. You know, they're they're very competitive. They've got a good defense. And uh, so he's able to make those adjustments that even even as peer programs uh, statistically or or win loss wise aren't don't have to worry about. I mean, like in Iowa and Wisconsin, they're always going to be going to bowl games. It's just a matter of, uh, you know, in Iowa's case, are you going to be eight and four or, or peak over that level? In Wisconsin's case, are you going to win the division or not? Uh, so, you know, overall, I, I think the West is going to be very competitive. I do think Wisconsin and Iowa are the top two. Uh, I think Minnesota's capable. They've got a great running back in Mo Ibrahim. He might be the best one in the league at this very moment. Depends on what happens throughout the, the course of uh, the season and who Ohio State can bring in. Um, and then, uh, you know, Nebraska's a, a guessing program, as always. We're not sure where they're going to be. Um, Illinois with Brett Bielema. Uh, you know, I talked to an assistant coach in the league a few uh, about a week ago, and he said, you know, one thing that he's done is he's called, personally called every high school coach in the state of Illinois since he's joined on. Uh, he's like, Lovey wouldn't even call, <laughs> wouldn't even step foot in some of the most important high schools in the state of Illinois. So that's going to be an important move for, for the Illini. I think they've been, out of all the programs in college football, probably the most underachieving uh, simply because they uh, – they are the flagship public institution in, in one of the largest states in the country and rarely enjoy any kind of success. And it's a diverse state from top to bottom. 
there's no there's no similarities, frankly, but between uh, downstate Illinois and Chicago. So uh, anything else you want to add about the Big Ten at this point, uh, post-spring and kind of the replacements of uh, what we saw in the draft? You know, what I will say is that the, the Big Ten um, has come a long way, you know, and I, I don't know if, you know, this is like old news to some people or whatever, but when you just like look at the, the 2021 NFL draft by conference breakdown. Like it was the SEC because of course it was at 65 total picks, but the big 10 was number two at, at 44. I mean, there's, there's an increasing um, amount of talent in this conference and there's some very, very good football teams. And, you know, maybe I've made this mistake in the past, but I always just kind of judge everybody through the lens of Ohio state, because that's what I covered for so long. And like, that's probably not the right way to do it, you know, and Ohio state is kind of off in its own class a little bit, but the rest of the conference, you know, is a lot tougher than all the other schools and other conferences in the power five, maybe outside of the uh, sec. I mean, when you look at what these, these programs have built and what they've been able to accomplish, you know, they, they might be very competitive uh, on a grand scheme, across the board for the rest of the power five. So like, I, I don't know exactly what that means in terms of having the roadblock at the end of the, at the end of the road there, if you have to face and beat Ohio state, um, you know, but I think as the years go on, big 10 is continuing to improve. And I'm very excited to see how it evolves moving forward because I think they're all on the right track. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned, the big 10 has changed a great deal. Um, Urban Meyer was was a change agent in this league for a lot of reasons. And I think you can go back in time and see, you know, over the last 60 plus years, who the change agents were. Um, I would say Woody Hayes in 1951. I would say Bo Schembechler in 1969. I would say Hayden Fry uh, when he was hired in 1979. I, I think you look at Joe Tiller and the way he changed offenses and Jim Tressel and but Urban Meyer has changed so dramatically in this league because it forced everybody to recruit at a different level. And what we saw in the late part of the last decade when even the Ohio State teams were getting just thumped by uh, in, in national title games, high-level bowl games, the, the talent level was not the same as it is now. And you know it as well or better than anybody. And But it also forced the old – I always call it, you know, kind of the cross-leg – Cross-legs and coffee conference 10 years ago where, you know, everybody it's kind of like old college or high school coaches where they get together, you know, they have a styrofoam cup of coffee, cross their legs, talk about football. It's, it's completely different now. Everybody's doing things in a better way. And so I, I think this is a competitive league, but one stands out. And it's, it's just a matter of can Michigan and Penn State in the East catch them? Can Iowa and, and, and Wisconsin and, and Nebraska you know, be able to recruit enough players, difference makers, to make it a competitive league. And and I think, by and large, they have over the last 10 years, but Ohio State's still so head and shoulders above everybody. It's good. And, and Urban Meyer, to me, is it was the uh, the difference maker in, in changing the entire You know, league. what I would love to see, and I know that, you know, you, you can't really do this, but, you know, in a fantasy land world, Scott, mm-hmm. I'd love to see – coaching staffs like the one that Kirk Ferentz put together or, or PJ Fleck and, you know, the, the really solid coaching staffs that the big, big 10 West has 
just in more advantageous geography, you know, because so much more of this, uh, you know, sport as we, we talk about recruiting going nationally is, is become online and national. And maybe that, that'll help, you know, in the grand scheme of things with, with, with programs that don't have advantageous geography, but it just like, they're at a stark disadvantage to Michigan and Penn state and Ohio state, just because there are a thousand really, really good players around those places that can drive to, to their high schools and to these programs. And in Iowa, it's just not the way it works. Nebraska is probably the, the worst off when it comes to just geography and what it's done to that program. And Wisconsin doesn't have a ton of talent in its state. And it's just, you know, even Northwestern and Illinois, despite the fact that Chicago's in, I mean, Chicago is not a hotbed for elite level talent. It's, you know, there's a few good players there every year, but it's not like it's LA or Dallas or, or Miami or you're even, you know, Northern Florida. So, not you know, it's Florida. just, it's just a very hard thing to overcome because when you have access to players, you have a better chance and a, and a more likely ability to formulate a executable plan than you do when you're kind of in no man's land when it comes to just the, the it's just funny to me too. And it may be a good story. It's like, why is Chicago one of the best basketball cities in the country, but not nearly as good at football, you know? And, you know, when you see like the, the, the way that the geography impacts both of those sports, I think it's very, very telling. So, you know, for what the Big Ten has put together with these draft picks, these 44 draft picks, and the fact that, you know, the vast majority of the league just doesn't have really solid geography that it can just lay on uh, or lean on, um, it's kind of an interesting thing. So, you know, I'm very curious to see how national recruiting, how NIL, um, you know, how the one-time transfer thing, uh, you know, goes into place because I think the the old days of you recruit as well as the talent around you are, are going to the wayside. And, these top level coaching staffs in less than ideal geographical circumstances might actually have a chance to do something different and, and even build teams that are capable of winning the conference. For sure. Uh, because you think of a, a prospect in Lincoln, Nebraska, uh, you know, there's been all kinds of discussion about, uh, well, I think fans who don't really understand the, 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 the issues with associated with the NIL think that, oh, if you're in Minneapolis or you're in Chicago, you're automatically going to benefit from that. But it's really the reverse because if you're a Northwestern Wildcat, say you're uh, Greg Newsom, you're not going to get any more endorsements in the Chicagoland area because there's five professional sports teams that all have a higher profile than Northwestern. But if you're in Iowa City, Iowa, if you're in Lincoln, Nebraska, if you're in Bloomington, Indiana, or Columbus, Ohio, of course, um, they are the kings. So they have those opportunities. And then, of course, you have your YouTube channels and, and other, uh, you know, uh, different platforms that will help you move. But but I think that the tiers are going to remain the same. I think uh, all conference players, even at Power 5 schools, are going to see what they can do at an Ohio State or an Alabama or a Clemson. I think all conference players at MAC schools are going to want to see what they could do at an Iowa or Wisconsin. And I think then, of course, the players that are second tier at all of those schools will, will make a lot of movement. So it's going to be fascinating to watch. And I think, uh, you know, the more we chart it now, when we start writing the, the trends and the ramifications of this whole era, I think it will be really fascinating to look back on it and say 2025 or 2026 to see what kind of changes were actually made here. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thanks for having, for jumping on, Ari. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you um, bring your five-star analysis. 
And uh, if you uh, want to subscribe to The Big Football Show, please do on Apple, Spotify, uh, iTunes. And uh, we will come back at you later at some point this later this spring or in early summer and twice a week during the fall. So thanks again, everyone. Thanks.